Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today, I've got another fantastic guest uh, with whom I can explore her journey. And Sabrina Walker-Hernandez certainly has got an intriguing journey behind her. And we are now talking to the version 2.0, the upgraded version, the, having had a big overhaul in her system, literally. So Sabrina, thank you very much for coming on to my show. It is an honor to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Mm. I really am. <laughs> Sabrina, you were a woman who had clear goals in her life, who you were in control. You were uh, the boss, literally, actually. So, <laughs> yeah. so tell us a little bit about your life. Tell us a little bit how it was. So it, I, I really was literally the boss. I was a CEO of a, 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 a nonprofit organization. Um, and it was, we had about a $2.5 million budget. We were in the third poorest county in the United States. Um, but we were knocking it out of the park. You know, um, I went from a $750,000 budget to a $2.5 million budget. I completed a $12 million capital campaign. And I was really, I was really knocking it out of the park, right? Beautiful. And then something happened, you know? Before, before we go there, before we go there, <laughs> what was what was your NGO doing? What was your, your task? Well, what was your we, passion? We, my passion has always been about the future and it's really about youth services. So I was um, with youth development and basically why I was with youth development, because people always ask me that, um, why was I with youth development? And I was with youth development because I grew up as one of those kids. You know, people always say those kids, those kids who maybe I grew up both with both of my parents, but um, I was one of those kids who my mom um dropped out of high school, but she went back and got her GED. And my dad only went to sixth grade. And so they really didn't know a lot about um, college and education and things of that nature, but they knew that it was a way out, but they didn't know how to pay for it. Um, but they always told me, and I will say this, they always told me when you're 18 years old, I don't know what you're going to do. You're going to have to join Uncle Sam's army or you're going to, but you have to get out of here. <laughs> so they, <laughs> they always told me you have to do something. And I'll so I was one of those kids. <laughs> well, please, please. Uh, I come from a very blue collar background as well. There wasn't much money around whatsoever. So I, I know a little bit from at least from a social strata point of view, mm -hmm. what you're talking about. Was there much gang, um, were there many gang problems where you come there from? There wasn't a lot of gang problems per se. I grew up in, a, I grew up in the rural South um, in North Carolina. Mm. Um, there wasn't a lot of gang issues, but there were a lot of drug issues. Mm. And a lot of times people that are growing up in poverty use drugs to escape. Um, and there was a lot of, it was a lot of that. Um, and it was a lot of just a lack of opportunity. And that's really why I got into youth development, because I really enjoy giving kids uh, opportunity. Um, I grew up in a town, like I said, a rural town, but we had a college in our town, uh, two colleges, and I never set foot on those college campuses. That, that was literally in our backyard, but I never had the opportunity. It wasn't encouraged. Um, whether it was because my parents didn't understand it or whether because the school didn't identify me in that way, although I had great, good grades, it just was never encouraged. And so I thought when I got into youth development, I want to make sure that kids get the opportunity to go on college field trips, get the opportunity to go to a restaurant. You would not believe how many kids, oh, maybe you would with your background as well, but you know, don't get to go into a restaurant um, because it's 
that's not where we spend our money, right? Mm-hmm. Going to McDonald's when I was growing up was a treat. My dad would get paid on Friday and that was like the big times, you know? <laughs> my, mom, mm-hmm. my mom had me convinced that, you know, having my friends over for bologna sandwiches and potato chips made me the cool kid on the block. <laughs> so no, on, a, on, a Friday, on a Friday night now, my parents allowed me to go to, to, a, uh, to a restaurant and get some chips and bring chips home. You could yeah. buy them in a, in a big, bucket there so I brought chips home and that was our treat so yes yes, please please I know exactly what you're talking about um no that's cool do you think that that had a lot to do with race or was that was that equally uh, a lack of opportunities for white kids uh in in the same environment I think that it had I think that it had a, a lot to do with uh, the socioeconomic background that I grew up with. I think also it had to do with race. Um, of course, like I said, I grew up in a Southern town. So you had one side of the track and you had the other side of the track. And the town was literally divided up by the tracks. Black people stayed on one side, white people stayed on the other side. Um, I was one of those kids. It's, it's very tricky because in school, Um, I looked around and usually there was only two black people in the class that I had, you know, me and someone else. And it was other, it was one of the white white kids. So I understood, and my mom always told me that I was smart. So I understood that I was smart. I just didn't know how, I guess where my passion come from was I was smart, but I didn't know how to navigate the system. And I wanted to make sure that kids understood how to navigate the system because you were, regardless of socioeconomics and race plays a part in not knowing how to play the game. And I didn't know how to play the game. And I wanted to make sure that kids knew, understood that, how to apply for college, how to apply for scholarships, how to network, how to do all those things. And that's really why I really fell in love with the youth development Mm -hmm aspect and, and why I dedicated my life to it because I want to teach kids how to play the game. <laughs> and after all, if you go back some decades, that was exactly how the, the civil rights movement acted. They went down there to the South to actually educate people how to vote, how to do those things, which just knowledge that was not immediately available. Right. So here you right. go. So you're a civil rights, <laughs> uh, you're a legacy, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I really, and, you know, it, it that, is, Yes, what it is. <laughs> mm, it is. And in all fairness, it doesn't have to do too much with race. I think it is a, uh, of course, sorry, let me rephrase that. In America, there's a huge issue of race relations. No yes. two ways around it. But the lack of knowledge with regards to opportunities that are there, that people just don't know about, that lack of knowledge is huge. And that transcends through all uh, strata of society but the the sad thing is the lower down you are in society the less you got that knowledge whilst the higher up you come the more that sort of seems to to sort of be taught exchanged etc so right it's normal conversation at that level and at the level i grew up with it's not normal conversation and it really it really is um it's really strange because my journey has taken me you know i live in south texas And South Texas is 10 miles. I live in Edinburgh, Texas, and I am about 10 miles from the Mexico border. And so the people and the kids that I deal with that I've spent the last 20 years with are primarily Hispanic kids. So the population here is 98% Hispanic, 1% African-American, 1% Black. So the same issues that I saw growing up in a predominantly black community is the same issues that I find here. And so, yes, it is about race, but a lot of times it is about just opportunity and the social economic background that you're from. If you don't know better, you don't do better. And my whole goal was to expose them to better. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. But then again, it's actually intriguing because you say the race and you use one descriptor per person, so to speak. But the life doesn't work out like that. I would love to take the whole nation of the United States and force every single one to do a DNA test and actually check out how much, how black are you really or how white are you really? 
and then we're talking race. Oh, okay? yeah, I did a DNA oh, test. please, that's it's right. Really cool. I've uh, done the DNA test, and it's, it was really strange. So, Is it not? Is yeah, it not? It it's I'm beautiful. Like 1%, 1% Native American, 2% Asian. I go, where did that come from? That's you exactly know? it. Exactly my point. So if everyone was to do that, could you imagine how do we fight wars? You know, I will fight these bloody whatever. And then you look at you, oh, sorry, forgot. Uh, I'm yeah. half. <laughs> yeah, somewhere in the DNA it happened. So it's really so, no, Brilliant, brilliant. So you, you actually got somehow the chance. You took the opportunities that were offering themselves to you and you got going you actually yes. got out of school you actually finished school yes. which is a big achievement for for yes. many kids in yes. in poorer socioeconomic uh places uh and that is a, did you have to go to different schools to achieve I, I did I, I started out when i graduated from high school believe it or not and i graduated with a good gpa but again i was not although i was in those gifted and talented classes I didn't have um, a particular counselor that kind of took me by my hand and showed me how to do scholarship applications or did any of that. So I basically started out at the local community college um, and I got a scholarship at the local community college. And then I joined the army and I tested so well that they gave me, I think a hundred thousand dollars in education. Um, And so the, yeah, the military paid for my undergraduate and my graduate degree. I walked away from school not owing anything. Um, of course, wow. you know, I had to serve my time. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I had to do my How time. How many years? How many years? Um, I did um, two, not at the time was a good deal. I did two years active duty and I did four years reserves. Um, so not not a bad investment at all. Not at I don't all. think it's a bad investment. Not at all. No student debt. So mm. I just remember it's really funny. My um, When I did my undergraduate degree, I... Uh, majored in pre-law. And so I was going to be a lawyer. And uh, I remember I interned for uh, a nonprofit and that's how I kind of how I fell in the nonprofit world. I really loved it, but I interned for some nonprofits. I used to mediate between landlords and tenants. And when the landlords are trying to kick out the tenants and turn off the water and do kind of things that were just not legal, I would uh, mediate between them. And I got to work with a bunch of attorneys and I was like, I don't like them. <laughs> Ain't like that. That's not what I want to do. So I called my parents and I said, well, I'm not going to go to law school. I'm going to go to graduate school. I'm going to get a master's degree. They were so disappointed because they had no concept what a graduate degree was. They knew what a lawyer was and they knew what a doctor is. I mean, that's what people want their kids to grow up, lawyer, doctor, because you and the, you know what that is, but they had no idea what a graduate degree was. They were so disappointed, <laughs> but it worked out. <laughs> but they like, were literally disappointed. But again, that is that is the story of virtually every guest I've got on this show. That there is this this need to prove yourself to others, the need to be loved by others, and often enough to their own detriment, where they actually go into professions or go into into certain states within their lives. Certain certain, for example, one person was following what her parents thought and the society thought I need to get married I need to have kids I need to have everything and not really realizing that deep down she was actually gay she was actually a lesbian and so she tried to conform as much as possible only then much later to say well it it destroys me I need to I need to come out kind of a thing and it's that's that's what we do that's ingrained in us we want to to be there for others, we want to look good, and, and there's there are good genetic reasons why we do not want to disappoint the tribe right. of, uh, that is around us. Because otherwise, we we get uh, ostracized, we get thrown yeah. out of the, the tribe. And fifty thousand years ago, that would have been a death sentence. Yes. Nowadays, we have still got the same motivations, though. We don't want to. We have to please everyone. Right. You just don't want to disappoint people. Mm. So, where did you get the the guts from to, to tell your parents actually no 
I I think that I've I think I actually got the guts from my parents. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> if, that, if that makes sense, um, so. my just because just because they had a lack of education didn't mean that they didn't understand and know. My mom, um, my mom is a very religious person, and she um, is in the Pentecostal church. And um, she followed a uh, female preacher, which at the time was unheard of. Right. Mm. And so but that's the choice that she made. And her family really didn't like it. But she (laughs) showed me how to stand up for what you believe in. And so I I just I got it from her. Nice. (laughs) No, so you can blame her. That's what I like that. <laughs> yeah. So sure. and it worked out, you know. Perfect. It worked out. She still doesn't understand quite what I do or what I did, but she knows that I, I have a good living and it worked out. Brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. So there you were, having worked hard, having found a way to leave a mark on the world, to be the person and you you grew through that NGO and you you rose through the ranks to become the CEO and this would have been an interesting job um, because you're the CEO you're responsible so how many hours a day did you work? I was working anywhere from 12 to 15 hour days. (laughs) That's about it. (laughs) Literally, literally working 12 to 15 hour days. But, you know, it didn't bother me because I so enjoyed it. I really did enjoy it. It was it was a challenge of a new day. Every day was something different. I mean, when you're working in the nonprofit world, you never have enough resources so you're doing we're wearing multiple hats and you're doing multiple things so the hours didn't necessarily bother me I had a very supportive spouse um my kids because I worked in youth development my kids could go to work with me (laughs) when they Uh, were in school so that worked out as well um and it just it's crazy now that I think about it though um because of what has happened to me I shouldn't have done it but at the time it felt, it felt, I would be lying if I said it didn't feel good. It felt good. It felt good because one, I was giving back Two, because I, I knew I was good at it mm. and I felt a success in it. I'm not necessarily good at being a housewife. <laughs> I'm not necessarily good at cooking and all that stuff like that. I wasn't good at that. That took, that took work. Uh-huh. <laughs> so if uh- I could stay in the office and do that, as opposed to come home and deal with the spouse, I would rather do the work. <laughs> Very nice. So, so how's, how's your husband with cooking? He doesn't cook either. Oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. He doesn't cook. <laughs> so it was an issue. <laughs> Come on, kids. Grow up quick. You need to learn how to cook. <laughs> you need to learn how to cook. We, we, we know. But yeah, I was okay. good at it. And I like, I loved it. So it did, it did at times feel like work, but at most times it didn't feel like work. Oh, and that can be very deceptive because it is work, because it is stress on the body. It is all of those things. Regardless of how much fun you think you're having. Exactly. Uh, There's a a word for it. It's the disease of being Um, self-employed. And it is a disease uh, because you're putting everything and then some into it. So a beautiful way of getting burnout. Yes. But that was not what stopped you. One day, one day you didn't feel so right. I didn't feel so right. (laughs) Tell us, how did that start? What was the very first thing where you thought, "Mm, Something is not so, right. Well, the so I I went on a business trip and I thought I had pulled a muscle hiking because I, I went on a business trip and it was in um, Arizona. So it was next close to my birthday weekend. And I thought, eh, roll it over until you into it. So we went hiking and um, I thought I really had pulled a muscle and I kind of, um, put it off in the back of my head and my back started hurting and I I put it off in the back of my head. And that was in January, mind you. 
then it started hurting more. And I said, well, and I stepped, kept going to the gym and I kept kind of doing things and I would go to the office and I even had people in the office would come check on me and they would literally, this is, this is sounds stupid right now, but they would literally come in my office and stretch me. That's how bad my back was hurting. I had staff people that would come in my office and they would look at me and then they would stretch my back. And I was like, okay, okay, it feels better. It feels, it feels better. And then I started going to the chiropractor and then he was like, you know, this is not, your body's not responding the way it should be responding. I think you need to go in for an MRI. So then he sent me in for an MRI and I literally, I got the test results and they said suggestive of lymphoma or multiple myeloma, which is types of cancers for those that don't know. Um, and that was in May. So from January till May, I was in severe pain. I was popping uh, probably four ibuprofens every two hours, <laughs> to, be, to be honest. And I, and I was still going to work and I was still doing everything that I, cause we had things that we had to get done. Um, but yeah, and it got really bad and, and the MRI results came in and, and when they told me, it was very, uh, it was very not emotional at all. The doctor came in and said, yeah, you, you, this, she gave me the paper and I basically read the paper and she said, any questions? And I'm like, well, yeah, that's questions. <laughs> Oh, yeah, come on. Right? Come yeah, on. Um, and then she kind of answered. Um, she she kind of said, um, well, you won't know until you get to you take this other test. And she said, my my assistant would come in and talk to you. And so the assistant came in. I, I mean, I was I sat there for like 30 minutes before someone came come came in. And she came in and she said, well, this was May, mind you. She said, we can't get to an appointment to confirm this diagnosis until July. And I freaked out in my head and I said, there's no way that I can, I can do this. I can't have these questions in my head until July. Mm. So I said, thank you. And I got in my car <laughs> and I, um, the fortunate part about it is I think that our lives, um, I, although I felt in control, I know that God is in control of our lives. And I really think that I was placed in Texas, met my husband, had that whole journey wound up in Texas it for that for one of those moments in my life and so what I did was I immediately um, went online and looked up MD Anderson which is five hours away from my house this is the number one cancer treatment uh, facility in the world and I got an appointment like in within three days beautiful um and I and then and then I called my mom and I bawled <laughs> good good <laughs> Yeah, because I had to get that out. Sure. <laughs> and she was like, I, I don't understand what you're saying. You're, you're crying too hard. You need to tell me what's going on. And I'm like, this is so I went through that. <laughs> and then I went to MD Anderson and um, I had to tell my husband, my husband does not react very well to stressors, <laughs> to news. So I had to tell him and we went to MD Anderson and I got there. And uh, she tells me, the doctor that's doing the intake, she goes, okay, well, she says, you probably don't have, it looks like, she, what did she say? She said, you probably don't have, she did, did the test and say, you probably don't have um, multiple myeloma. You probably have lymphoma because only, it's very rare to get both of those. I mean, that, she was like, she was adamant. It's very rare to get both of those. And I was like, okay, okay. And I said, well, by the way, I have this lump right here. (laughs) And she was like, then she started to panic. (laughs) She's like, oh, you didn't say that. And so I had to go in. It was a journey. So then I had to go in and do a, a test where they get the cells out and test all that. Well, in that process, I found out I was allergic to Profilol which is what killed Michael Jackson. And so <laughs> I had acute pancreatic uh, attack and I was in the hospital for 30 days with a tube oh, down goodness. my throat. 
goodness. Could not eat. And this is before the official cancer diagnosis. This was trying to get to the cancer diagnosis. Unbelievable. Um, it was it was a journey. Um, so my husband called in my mom and my sister and my best friend. He called in all the troops and he's like, I don't know if she's going to make it. And I don't know. And I'm like, I don't remember any of this, you know, kind of going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I get through that. And then they say, OK, we can start treating you for cancer now. And so in my head, okay, tell me what I got to do. Tell me what I need to do. I got it all mapped out. Okay. I'm thinking I have lymphoma. I'm good. Lymphoma is curable, right? For those who don't know a lot about cancer, Mm -hmm. lymphoma is curable. And you you don't get, because this is what the doctor told me, you don't get lymphoma and myeloma together. It's a 1% chance. It just doesn't happen, right? So I'm going through my first chemo and I did okay. And then I get this new doctor and he's like, well, your numbers are looking good for the lymphoma, but the myeloma. And I'm like, wait, I don't have myeloma. And he's like, yes, you do. (laughs) He's like, you have lymphoma and you have my myeloma. And I bawled again because my grandmother died from my myeloma. Uh, And I just bald because I, I guess the, the, the faith journey, I guess the conversation prior to this is I was having that conversation with God about faith in my head. I was, I was really having a conversation with God about faith in my head. And I, and I kept saying, you know, I've never had real tragedy. How do you know if you have faith if you never if your faith has never been tested, right? That's, that was where I was, I don't know why my mind was there. I have no idea why, why I was having those conversations in my head and with God. And I just kept saying, well, well how do you know? Um, the traditional things have happened in life. I'm pretty optimistic. I know things are gonna happen in life. You know, things don't really get me off kilter too much because I expect things to you know, ebb and flow, good and bad, you know, all that. I lost my grandparents, um, but that's the traditional way of life. You lose your grandparents. I hadn't lost my parents or my kids were healthy. Life was decent, you know, and I was having these conversations. And (laughs) at some point when I was laying in the hospital bed, in my head, I guess I was thinking, well, be careful what you ask God for. (laughs) because you just might get the test um, of the lifetime. <laughs> and I, I was like, okay. So, you know, I was really, for a while there, I was really, I don't want to say scared. I want to say I was really, scared is, is not the word because I've always had faith, but I was really I don't know if it's fearful because my prayers are, are, I always end my prayers with let your will be done. And if God's will is to take you and you're praying, let your will be done. You have to resolve that in your head. If that makes sense. Very much so. But if that's always been your journey, there's no change in your journey if that's what your journey is, right? (laughs) (laughs) You can't can't ask for something and then say, well, actually, I've changed my mind. Uh, Sorry, no, no, I I didn't mean it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. But in the back of my head, I was like, oh, your grandmother, she died from multiple months. She died from multiple months. Are you seriously saying let your will be done? Are you seriously Mm -hmm. saying let your will be done? And um, it, it was, it was, it was a it was a battle between faith and fear for a while. It really was a battle between faith and fear because faith is faith for me was and still is that things are going to work out. And workout may not be that that means that you're going to be here in this physical realm, you know? Workout things are going to work out could mean that it's your time to leave and you just have to get comfortable with that idea. And 
the battle of the fear of leaving one, right? And to the fear of not um, having accomplished what you were put here to do. That was, that was the other fear for me. Have I accomplished what I, have I lived my purpose? Have I truly lived my purpose? And being in a nonprofit world and having that passion to help and that passion to give back, I really wanted to be able to say that I lived my purpose. And so I wasn't, I wasn't comfortable saying that um, at that time, although I was working 12, 15 hours a day, was I doing that like I told you at the beginning because it validated me? Mm-hmm. Or was I doing that because it was my purpose? Mm-hmm. So all those things came into play. <laughs> and, and I'm a, still you know, mm-hmm. Can I, I want to add here a few things just for the listeners um, from a, from a doctor's point of view, may I, may I say the, in the first instance, the multi, uh, the multiple myeloma or myelomas and lymphomas, what we're talking about is two different forms of cancer. Mm-hmm. Cancer means that uh, a cell in your body starts misbehaving and the body can't deal with it. And so it starts to grow and more cells are coming and are starting to destroy the body. So that's mm-hmm. what cancer does. And cancer come, cancer can come out of every tissue that you can imagine, from skin to bone to blood to lymph cells to bone marrow, etc. So a myeloma is something that comes from the bone marrow. A lymphoma is something that comes from the, the white cells, uh, the, those cells that are normally defending uh, the body uh, against foreign things that are coming into the body. So the police, so to speak, in the in the system, and when lymphs, lymph lymph uh, lymphomas happen, then you typically get these kind of swellings, the kind of lymph nodes mm-hmm. that are sort of underneath your skin that your doctor might feel when you've got a cold. Um, these lymph nodes start to swell, and they can swell throughout the body. So that's a lymphoma, myeloma, more uh, lesions within the bone. Yeah, I had lesions in my back. That's why my back was hurting. Mm. Indeed, yeah. right. So there you go. And that explains sort of the two things. Now, both things can kill you. Mm-hmm. And luckily with myeloma, there is not luckily, let's rephrase that. With lymphoma, there are certain lymphomas that with aggressive chemotherapy, you indeed can sort out once and for all. But myeloma, not not such a possibility. Oh. So that just to get the facts right. Um, with the propofol that you said, yes, you're right. Uh, bloody Michael Jackson, of course, died with it, and he should have never had that drug. Propofol, guys, this is a standard drug that we use as soon as you go off to sleep for surgery. It's virtually guaranteed nowadays that you get propofol. No, we don't kill our people with propofol. To have an allergic reaction to propofol is exceptionally rare. I mean, for crying out loud, you're talking talking like once in a lifetime kind of rare. And here, you, that's right, exactly. Now, if it was an allergic reaction, I'm not so sure because I haven't seen your medical records, so I don't right. know. So I'll take your word at it. Yes. The pancreatitis, if because you have had lymph nodes that are throughout the body, it could very well be that, that some lymph node was pressing on the duct that comes out of this mm-hmm. pancreas and therefore got a backflow there and therefore you got a pancreatitis, which made you sick as a dog and sent you basically into the hospital. So there are a number of variations out there. So please guys, don't don't have an anesthetic tomorrow and you suddenly get, you see that white stuff and you think, oh my God, he's killing me. That's no, not the case, okay? Yeah, no, so I need not to, the case at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, they told me very rare. That's right. So but again, rare. the other thing I want to say is I, I feel sorry for you because the way that communication had occurred in your case where was maybe not so ideal um, because there was a lot of uh, yeah things where I shrugged my head and said, really? No, no. And it is, we certainly don't try to do that. And, and you can actually expect a bit better than, than this kind of, oh, I don't know, maybe in two months or maybe after Christmas. Right. Yes, yeah, uh, it was yeah, very yeah. alarming. 
No, no. Having said that, mm-hmm. one last thing, medical, then we come back to your story. Okay. The problem, of course, is now with COVID, we have got no longer a normal system. You may very well have a situation where all your resources are being thrown towards COVID and towards people who are really, really, really sick Mm -hmm. at the detriment of people with cancer or other chronic diseases that Mm -hmm. suddenly get their clinics canceled because the doctors are just, they can't do it. So right now, we are not talking about normal medical systems. We are talking about systems in distress. Mm -hmm. And there will be people who will not get their diagnosis in time yeah. And there will people. There will be people who die because other people do not wear the masks, because other yeah. people do not wash their hands or yeah. social distance. Right. These are just because some idiots and assholes out there think they have got all the rights in the world. Um, they are actually killing people. They directly. they really are. Yeah. They they really are. And I, for that reason, I really don't leave my house. Mm. Um, and since March, you know, I only leave for my doctor's appointments. Um, and uh, that's because I have to get um, uh, I have to get bone treatments because my bones are kind of not right either because of everything that you said. And so I have to get treatments to strengthen my bones and I'm on chemo pills. Um, so I only really leave the house um, for those for those treatments. And even my appointments at MD Anderson have been um, telemed. So because Houston is a hot spot as well. So exactly. So you guys out there, if you listen and you are actually right now saying, oh, I've got the right to not wear a mask. Please listen to Sabrina. Okay, that is hers. That is the real life. Yours is a life of privilege and of entitlement. And I would like to ram that uh, that mask down your throat and see how you breathe with that. Um, okay, so that's the reality. Please, guys, we all have got a responsibility. And one of them is to look after the people around us. And that is by being nice, wash your hands, cough into your arm and and wear a mask and social distance. It's yes, not it's, it's very it's, it's very true because things like the common cold could kill me. Mm, and I think correct. That, and that's just a common cold. Um, and so people just don't understand it. I think because they're not in that situation, they don't understand. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of people walking around with compromised immune systems that it's not really about you. It's about your neighbor. And Absolutely. Neighbor. Absolutely. And I think that is it, it is such a little thing. It yeah. is such a little thing that shows common courtesy and respect and dignity and, and all that. All those things that you demand for yourself, guys, out there. I want to be treated with respect. Yeah, then show it. Yeah. Um, so good point. So that's my little rant uh, for today. Sorry. <laughs> no, I will not cut that out of the interview because I think it's important that we have that out there. Because for Sabrina, it's a matter of life and death if you wear your, your mask or not. So therefore, mm-hmm. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Bloody hell. So here you are, CEO, uh, yeah. a woman who is burning the candle on both ends and in the yeah. middle. And suddenly, um, bang. Yeah, suddenly bang, um, I got stopped in my tracks. And it's really funny because as I was going through the chemo, my um, my brother-in-law and my sister um, came to visit me. Um, they, they live in North Carolina and they, they came to Texas to visit me. And uh, they he really, my, my uh, brother-in-law, Savalas, really did a gut check on me because I, I wanted to literally sleep through the whole thing. I did not want to deal because I was not in control. I was not in control. And I thought if I just lay here and when I wake up and do this, it'll all be over. <laughs> right. <laughs> it'll be over. Just like and, that. And, 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 yeah, just like that. And, and he did a gut check on me. He's like, you can't sleep through this. You got, you got to get up and you, you got to deal and you got to, you got to do what you got to do. And and that's what I, and that's, I'm glad he said that because it did render a gut check um, for me. And um, eventually I got to the point where, you know what, 12 sessions of chemo, we can do this <laughs> and we're going to, we're going to get through this. And um, I did my 12 sessions of chemo and I did a stem cell transplant in January and cool. 
I'm I'm doing I'm doing well now. Um, and in the middle, while I was in the hospital, I don't know if I've really changed internally <laughs> a lot. Um, while I was in the hospital, my husband, because I, I really did have a bad reaction to one of my chemos. And he was like, okay, you need to retire. He, he was he was totally convinced it was the stress of the job that bought the cancer on. He, he that, that was just his bottom line is the stress and I'm not, I can't do it. And so I had my 20 years of service. So I said, okay, I'll retire. But as I was sitting there and I was going, oh my God, but I love what I do. I love what I do. How am I going to do what I do? So I came up with this great compromise, right? I'm going to start a consulting firm working with nonprofits. And that's what I, and that's how I spent my 30 days in the hospital <laughs> with my stem cell transplant, incorporating my business and building my website and doing that. Um. Is, that is that a bad thing? Not at all. Not at all. Because that is what you needed at that moment. That was the, the glimmer of hope. That was your survivor coming out and saying, okay, I understand my life as I've let it so far was great. But right now there's a spanner in the works. Okay, what else can I do? And that is a question that a, a survivor asks herself. And that is such a powerful thing. There was in the 70s in Germany, there was a study done uh, amongst cancer patients and they did psychological interviews and grouped them uh, into kind of survivor attitude. I will survive with, oh, no, it is what it is and et cetera, so the, the kind of give up attitude. And then they matched the cancers and, and made sure that each cancer is exactly the same, et cetera. And they found that the survivors survived three times as long as those people that gave up. So really good. So yeah. survivor. Purpose. Yeah, yeah to, absolutely. To look forward to something, to have a future, to, to plan for mm. something. I, I, I needed that. And, exactly. and that's what I did. Now my husband didn't necessarily agree with it. <laughs> <laughs> so what was his solution? What was he saying? He was like, you need to slow down. This mm. is like telling you to slow down. You're mm. going to stress yourself out. And you're, you, why are you doing this? You don't need to do this. And I'm like, but I do. Yeah. I, I do need to do this. This is, it's not, it's, it's eccentric. It's something that I need to do. Mm. Um, and, and even till today, it's, it's a year later, you know, and I'm doing my business and, and he'll still look at me and say, you're, you're doing it again. You're doing it again. <laughs> like, no, I'm not. I'm in. I am in my happy place. That's right. <laughs> but it, it's two o'clock in the morning. You yes. are still in. <laughs> You're doing it again. But this is my happy place. You don't understand. <laughs> so okay. Yeah. One one could of course say that there is a bit of a degree of escapism. So mm -hmm. in, you you knew you couldn't sleep for a year. So you know, therefore, well, if you work hard for a year and forget about the the other challenges, yeah. that is of course. Uh, it all out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it is what it is. It is it you is need to do. You need to figure out what works for you in your life. And yeah. it might be hard to fathom for others. Yes. But as long as you are happy and content, and as long as you can make sense of the challenges that are thrown at you, yes. then I think you're on the right path. Yeah. The moment you just do something in order not having to deal with the reality. I think that would be a shame because there are some questions that you need to answer. And these are the hard questions, the, right. the, the negative emotions, the, the very real fear of mortality, the mm -hmm. very real fear. Well, if I was to pass away now, what was to happen? Right. And, uh, certainly my my mum passed away from, from breast cancer and she never asked that question. Mm -hmm. And I was far too traumatized at that time. I never asked her that question either. Mm -hmm. So it was hiding, hiding, hiding till the very last second. And it is a shame. It is a shame. Yeah. And and some people deal with it like that. My, my husband deals with it like that. I am more of... I don't, I don't know what you call it, and I'm hoping you can tell me, 
but I'm, I am more of a planner. So I went, I got my will done. I got, I got all those things in place. And I said, this is the picture I want at my funeral. This is the song I want to have song. This is how I want it. And if you do anything different, we're going to have a problem. <laughs> so I was does. one of those, but he was very upset every time I bought it up. <laughs> so he was one of those, but I don't know. It just seems you, you ever dealt, I'm sure you have, uh, the law of attraction uh-huh. and and the secret and all those. In my head, everything worked out because that's that's what I was attracting. I was trying to put out what, what I wanted back. In my head, everything worked out. That was the law of attraction. However, I did have some practical things in place just in case something happened. How beautiful is that? That is exactly, you have to both of best worlds, is it not? That is, you need to be a realist uh, to to only think law of attraction and only think that somehow, because I think positive, therefore everything will be rosy and positive and nice around me. Nah. That's the yeah. same as if I was to go into my job and say, oh, I'm such a positive guy now. So therefore, I will never have an emergency because, no, I'm just far too positive about that. Nah, nah. Somehow life has got other yes, plans. it's the ebb and flow. <laughs> so you have to kind of deal with both things. Exactly, exactly right. No, 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 no. So it is what it is. So I like your attitude and I like I like your... your your backbone, so to speak. However, painful it is now. The well, backbone. The in there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. <laughs> oh dear. Well, yeah. Another thing that keeps me going is the science has come so far. From the time that my grandmother was diagnosed with myeloma mm. to now, the science has just really come so far. I, I remember with my when my grandmother went through myeloma, it was really bad because we lived with my grandmother for a while and I remember her going into the hospital and I remember the doctor like having to assist her with just bodily functions because it gets that bad um till to now where when after I got to my stem cell doctor he basically um told me he told me to look at it like having diabetes he said take care of yourself exercise, take your chemo pill, and you can maintain. And that really helped me. I I will say that really helped me. Um, But at the same time, I the advancements that have taken place since my grandmother got diagnosed to now, just the stem cell transplant alone is something that they probably would not have done for myeloma 10 years ago. So... Is absolutely, and and science continues to evolve, and that's the beautiful thing. Unfortunately, life also continues to evolve and comes up with new things such as COVID, which suddenly put a spanner again into the works. And this will not be the last the last disaster that hits mankind. In actual fact, we were well and truly overdue of. COVID, because normally pandemics like influenza come every 30 years thereabouts, and we didn't have one since the 50s, so we were well and truly overdue. And uh, it is, things will change. We are living in uncertain times, so I think that is the only given that I can assure you about. So therefore, it is so important to learn from people like you how they have dealt with the challenges that suddenly were thrown upon them. You didn't ask for it, but you rolled with the punches and you had the level of communication with the people around you. You had people who actually, like your your brother-in-law, actually pulled your socks up and said, come on, this is... (laughs) Okay, so, and that is so important. So the power of human connection, the power of you listening to others and opening up to others to actually say, actually, I I am thinking about my death. I am thinking about the funeral arrangements. And no doubt, this was hugely painful for your husband. So that's the completely other side of the story. Those people that love you 
and feel incredibly hopeless and powerless uh, in their own right because they want to see you happy. They hate you to see you in pain, all those kind of things. So that's a completely different journey there, or just as, as important. Because for every, for every survivor like you, there's at least one other person and probably two, three other persons, including um, sisters, brothers, husbands, and, and, and parents um, who are suffering as well. So uh, it is, uh, yeah, no, it's beautiful to yeah, see. My, my kids, um, I have four kids and I try not to let them, I, right or wrong, my approach with my kids, and they're older. I mean, my oldest is 30. I have a 28, 27, and then I had an 18-year-old. Right or wrong, my approach for them was they are going to respond how I respond. So if I project confidence and positivity, mm. that's the way they're going to receive it. Mm. And that's what I did most of the time, 99.9% .9 of the time. Mm. It was one time that my daughter she was pregnant with her first child and tradition is I do all the baby showers but I was having such a hard time after one of these chemos and I pulled in a room and I said you know Nadia I, I don't I don't think I can I can do it I, I really don't and I started crying not because I was in pain but because I felt like I was disappointing her mm -hmm. and not doing the family tradition mm -hmm. And I had a hard time processing that. Um, and she she said, it's okay, mom. It's okay, mom. And then I thought, okay, I got handled that pretty well. And then my husband came in the room and he was like, what do you do to Nadia? And I said, what? I, I, he goes, she's in the laundry room crying. And I go, oh, no. Because, you know, she's more like me. She's not a crier. So I was like, I must come across really really bad you know but i it was just so raw to me mm. um because i love family I, traditions no no you didn't come across yeah. uh wrong you you let the truth come out and yeah. you gave her permission to let her mask down okay yeah. so don't think for a moment that she didn't know the, the moment she heard myeloma, she would have been on the on Google and looking it up, and the same with lymphoma. That yeah. is what kids do. That is, they they know so much, but they try to please you. They try to keep the mask up. They try to be to be the perfect children in order to support mum. So therefore, they fight their own battles uh, with this this. Mm. So here you are. You both let your mask slip a bit, and that's not necessarily yeah. something wrong yeah yeah even even sitting here talking about it right now brings me to tears almost because mm -hmm. i felt like i i feel as if i disappointed her because mm -hmm. i i am the one i am the one in the family that is i don't freak out <laughs> <laughs> I I don't I don't freak out. I'm I married a person who freaks out, so we balance each other. And so I'm the I'm the one who keeps it together. <laughs> but in that moment, I freaked out just a little bit, and it 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 upsets me. But hearing hearing you say that that makes me feel a whole lot better because you know we it is is almost like you said that we didn't talk about it. We 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 didn't talk about. Although I talked about it in my head about mortality and immortality, and I was okay with it, we didn't verbalize it out loud to each other. So mm. that makes that makes perfect sense, and, and that makes me actually feel a whole <laughs> lot better. It does. You thank you. Oh, thank you. No, I think I think it is it is it is something that we all are not very good in. Here you are, you are truly a self-made woman who by controlling every aspect around her was, you were achieving what you were achieving. Mm -hmm. So you had a lifetime of this successful behavior and now suddenly life is changing. Life is changing and it's beyond your control. So therefore, you still will use the same coping mechanisms, which are actually very positive and very good, those of a fighter for you. But they come with a bit of a, 
disadvantage in this particular case. And that's what I for a long time didn't didn't know how to do to actually talk and communicate my own feelings, the negative emotions particularly. I had no idea how to deal with them and I relied on alcohol. I relied on numbing the pain, not dealing with the pain. I never had the discussion with my mum how she was feeling about her cancer. I never had those discussions that I would have today. Instead, I was literally drowning my sorrows, sorrows, and it was, it was, it was what it was. That I didn't, I didn't know any better at that time, and I try nowadays to model a different, different behavior to my boys. I try to show them that I can talk about my emotions. And rather than explode in their face, I tend to say, look, guys, right now I feel quite ratty. And I don't actually know why it is, but right now I could rip your head off. And But I don't mean it. And, and, and you probably have done very little. Yes, you didn't clean up, but so what? It is, it is probably more my problem like that. By actually talking about it like that, I give myself myself permission to actually recognize what's going on and verbalize it. And I give them a chance to not walk into a knife um, by them realizing, well, okay, I better clean up actually kind of a thing. So, but this is something that only can do now after a journey of seven years, so to speak. And you have had, when was your initial diagnosis? My initial uh, diagnosis was in 2018. So it's just been two years. Two years now. Mm-hmm. Two years now. Yeah. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> God, yeah. And that's, that's yeah. see, that's the gallow humor. That's the gallow humor because ultimately, you know, it is, we here you are laughing your head off and other people will probably cringe the way I've said that. Uh, and it is just so bizarre because when you, when you go through hell, you know you need to keep going. And sometimes yeah. a gallow humor is the, is the best thing to get you there. The best thing to get you there. I mean, <laughs> hey, they say laughing prolongs life. So every laugh, I'm prolonging. Hell yes. Hell yes. Hell so, yes. I, I, have no, I don't know. I mean, what what is the alternative? And that's what I tell people. What What is the alternative? I mean, I can't. I, at the end of the day, none of us is guaranteed tomorrow. Hmm. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. So, what can we do today to make the world a better place for tomorrow? Do everything that you can do today. Indeed. Because no one is guaranteed tomorrow. And so that, we're all so, living in that. We're all, we all have that same guarantee. Hmm. It's just that I've been diagnosed and it's more in the forefront of my mind than it is for most. Correct. Correct. But we all live in the same paradigm. Sabrina, where are you now? Or nine. Let me rephrase that question. What is your vision? Your your life has changed, but where are you going now? So I'm building an empire. Yay. (laughs) See, there must be a little bit of German in you as well. We just had this discussion before about uh, about we all need to do a DNA test because there there is so many different... <laughs> so many lines across. I, I tell my husband that now. He goes, "What are you doing on that computer? You on that computer again? It's twelve o'clock at night. I'm going building an empire. So <laughs> here's what the empire looks like. So come on, show me. <laughs> here's the empire. So really, what I am trying to do is I'm trying to support other nonprofit CEOs out that are out there and nonprofit founders and 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 um, people in that arena because it is stressful. I mean, there is no doubt about it. It is stressful. At the end of the day, when you are serving in those roles, whether people get paid or not get paid, whether clients get serviced or not get serviced, it's all up to you because you're responsible for the fundraising. You're responsible for engaging the board members. You're responsible for that organization. And so what I have done, I don't know how I'm going to build an empire on this philosophy, but it's going to get there. So what I have done is I have set up this nonprofit consulting firm and I'm working with a lot of clients offline, helping them, you know, identify staff and things like that. But 
at its core is I have a website and it's www.supportingworldhope.com. But everything pretty much up there is free. So I have a free resource library um, where if you need a job description for a board member, if you need a uh, strategic plan, if you need whatever kind of thing that you need is in that library. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? You can go into that library, pull it, customize it to your organization and and do it like that. I have a, a Facebook group where I go in and I do free coaching um, to people that are CEOs or founders of nonprofits. I give them free coaching. Um, I do. I send out a news uh, newsletter every day at 730 in the morning. You get a newsletter and it always has a tip in there or something that you can you know put into play right now. And that's free. Well, my friends, because I do everything free, it's like, look, girl, you're building an empire. You got to make some type of money. <laughs> so I'm learning how to do an online course uh, where I am um, teaching a six week course, teaching people how to fundraise based on building relationships. Because I think at the end of the day, I think that's my true gift. I think my true gift is the ability to build relationships. And I think my success was credited to the fact that I, I am good at building relationships across the board. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your political affiliation. I have a lot of friends. I mean, it's America. I'm not a Republican, but I got a lot of friends that are. And my, I can get along pretty much with anyone and build a relationship with them. And, and that to me has been the key to my fundraising success. Um, and so I said, okay, fine. I'll build a course around that and teach. I try to teach people how to do that. Uh, <laughs> that is that is the hardest thing uh, yes. for an uh, for an NGO, because NGOs typically attract people who are passionate, but mm-hmm. they are not necessarily educated in what to do. So yes. therefore, there is no playbook there. There is no no course there. So this is damn good so i see that i see the need for that and i mean how many there must be what quarter of a million ngos in in the united states in the united states alone there is in my county alone when i when i kind of did the research and said well do you know what does it look like there's like fourteen thousand registered nonprofits in my county alone but i can probably name on my hand like the successful ones it's like people start them but they're trying to run them off passion and not Mm -hmm. necessarily business and then they fail exactly but there is a business to the nonprofit world i always tell people nonprofit is just a tax designation Mm -hmm. it's still a business and you still have to run it as correct you can't live off passion alone you, wow. you really do have to do the other parts. Oh, please. And so oh, I can teach people to do that. I think that um, I would, that's, that's where, that's how I'm going to build an empire. I like it. I like it, Sabrina. (laughs) I know the need is there and the need is there. And I think um, if I was an NGO uh, CEO, I would see that, that, that not requirement, that, that lack. I would, if I suddenly came across your course, I would jump at it with yeah. no questions asked because yeah. there can't be so much out there because, and, and to reinvent the wheel is just painful. Yeah. So yeah. now yeah, time I mean, is there's everything. No need. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. Exactly. Really no need. Exactly. Um, okay. I do have a workshop that's coming up and it's free. Right, there you go. <laughs> I know I'm, I'm going to get there, but I do have a workshop that's coming up October the 27th through the 30th. And basically, I have 12 um, experts in the nonprofit world um, that's coming in. And we're going to be talking about fundraising, board development, and marketing. Beautiful. And it's a three-day uh, yeah, three conference, three hours each, because nobody has time to sit in a conference all day on online. We're kind of, you know, that's not going to happen. But um, they're going to be talking about peer-to-peer fundraising, how to raise money online. They're going to be talking about how to engage your board. They're going to be talking about how to market and brand your nonprofit. And there's going to be no cost to it. Um, so I, I encourage people to sign up for it. Beautiful. Okay. Is there a Facebook? Uh, is there a, a website specifically? Yeah, it's called buildathrivingnonprofit.com. It's, and it's actually um, up right now to get on the wait list. Perfect. We don't technically so, start registering. 
Guys, yeah. just look down there into the description of the podcast and the YouTube channel. We have everything down there. So you can just click on that and get straight to Sabrina's uh, passion, her new vision. And no doubt, if you are indeed running an NGO or maybe just want to learn more about a skill that is so important, which is communication, and the yes. other skill that is so important, how to attract money, then yes. these are some pretty good, good places to start. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Well done, yeah. Sabrina. Thank you. Oh, Thank Sabrina, you. I'm so pleased for your for your passion, and I'm so pleased that you were able to to share today with us your path and and your Thank story, you. because there's so many lessons in there, so many lessons of hope, of of survival, and with that I mean the positive thing, the the need to recognize that there's a problem, to stop, to think, to adapt, to change. And it's okay from now and then to feel really, really sad about something and to have a pity party. And that's okay. That's absolutely yeah. fine. That's normal. Uh, just don't build your tent over there in the pity yeah. pit. Um, yeah. No, it is just, yeah, yeah go there. I have, a, I have a, a philosophy around that. And people always laugh at this philosophy, but it's carrying me through. Let me just say this, um, especially about the pity party. I go, everybody deserves a pity party, right? We all do. And we're, we're human. We're going to have it. But I say you get three days. Good. Three days I like that. I like that. Party because, you know, like Jesus that. died and rose in three days. So that's all you get. <laughs> Excellent. Love it. Love it, Sabrina. That's, it. that's all you get. <laughs> guys, if you're religious, that's it. So three days, 72 hours. Sorry, guys. Time is running. Okay. Time is running and you got to get up. You got to make it <laughs> Oh, I love it, Sabrina. I love it. Guys, this was a fantastic interview. Thank you very much for hanging around and listening to us here. Uh, lots and lots of things to learn. Sabrina, it was an honor to have you on my show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. And I really do want to say thank you. You gave me a new perspective on the situation with my daughter. Hmm. Um, and because I really was feeling bad about it. But hmm. now the way that you framed it for me, she it was probably a great emotional release for her. Correct. So thank you. Correct. Thank you so much. Oh, and you guys out there, look after yourself. Make the most out of this minute, this second, because that's all you have got. You might as well make the most out of it. Look after yourself. Bye. <laughs>